Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me, if you would please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 13. We'll read down through verse 3 of chapter 2. We will not finish this today. I will need to complete this message next week. Uh, it is a call to holiness, a call to holy living. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Beginning in verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that you communicate to us what you are like and what you ask of us. Lord, I pray indeed that there would be that family likeness in us that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that our lives would be salt and light in an evil age. God, use us as vessels in your hands to be servants in this culture that we might point others to Christ. Now, Lord, give us wisdom in this text we've just read this morning. Uh, help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. God, all I can do is speak to ears. It takes your spirit to speak to hearts. And I pray today that you would do that. For your honor and your praise. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. In the text we see today, Peter is going to give us four imperatives, four commands 
And we're going to look hopefully at three of those four today. And folks, what I want you to see is how these commands grow out of the passage that just came before. The passage that we looked at before, beginning in verse 3, going down through verse 12, celebrates the great salvation that God has given us. Peter emphasized there that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We saw there also that God has given us that inheritance in heaven and he's preserving it for us and there's nothing that can take away that inheritance. And then likewise, he is guarding us and protecting us until the day that we receive that inheritance. And so if you grew up in a church tradition that said that you can lose your salvation, uh, verses 3 through 12 would certainly be a testimony against that. Your inheritance is protected for you, and you are protected for it. Now, in the verses that we're going to look at today, Peter points out that this should mean something to you now. This glorious salvation that we have, being recipients of God's grace through Jesus Christ, it ought to mean something of us now. It ought to, ought to demand something of us now. Folks, salvation in the New Testament is never presented as something that once we receive it, we can just sit back and be saved and satisfied. That's not the New Testament image at all. In fact, I want you to turn back with me, if you would please, to Romans chapter 6 because I want to read a chapter that says a great deal about that. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ... Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, uh, he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You see what the Bible is saying? The new birth implies that there are actions now that should flow out of our salvation. 
There are actions that are based upon gratitude. As Thomas Schreiner points out in his commentary on 1 Peter, what Peter is not talking about is a works righteousness. He is talking about a change of life and a righteousness that grows out of our gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. Now what we're going to see in our text today is a call to holiness based on our certain salvation. This holiness is going to be seen in four distinct ways. Again, we'll look at three of them today. First of all, he tells us that we are to live in hope. Look at verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to underscore not the first phrase, but the second phrase, because that's actually the main clause, and it's a command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything else in the text modifies that. He's talking here about living in hope. Now remember, they are in the midst of trials and tribulations. The, the tendency is when we are going through trials, when we are going through tribulation, oftentimes we take our eyes off of the Lord and we put our eyes on our circumstances and we lose our hope. And what he is saying here is we need to keep our hope firmly fixed where it ought to be. I mean, I realize if you're dealing with a screaming baby at 3 a.m. in the morning, you're, you're probably not thinking much about the grace that is to be revealed to you one day, but he says we're supposed to be. Maybe you are thinking about that grace and hoping it'll hurry up and get here. The tendency is, though, that we allow all of the trials of our present life to become our focus, and we end up, before it's said and done, wallowing around in the misery of it all. And Peter is saying, this is what we need to get a better handle on as Christians. Now, folks, I'm aware of the old saying, don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good, but Peter is also reminding us of the opposite of that, that we are not to be so earthly minded that we are no heavenly good. Don't lose your hope. I want you to fast forward in your mind for a moment to the grace that will one day be revealed to you in its fullness when we see Jesus. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? I think of text of scripture like Revelation 21. I never grow tired of reading a text of scripture like Revelation 21. Let me read it to you again. 
Then I, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold I'm making all things new and he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true whatever you go through this week I want to remind you of that big picture I want to remind you of the future hope you and I will have when, when God's grace is revealed to us in its consummation at the return of Christ. And what that means as we focus in on that is that Christians should never be a people of despair who lose all hope. No matter how bad things might get in this world, we have a glorious heavenly home that is waiting on us. Don't get so wrapped up in your troubles now that you take your eyes off of living for that future hope. Now folks, I realize it's easier said than done. And so Peter's going to go on to tell us how do we do that? How do we keep our hope? fixed our, our focus on that future hope. How do we do that? Well, he tells us. Go back to the first part of the verse. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Literally, he says, gird up the loins of your mind. The King James Version translates it very literally using the Semitic idiom that we're not familiar with anymore today. And that's why the newer translations put it in terms that we use today. But I love that literal rendering, gird up the loins of your mind. The modern equivalent would be roll up your sleeves. Roll up your sleeves. Now let's do a little grammar lesson here for a moment, okay? Because it is a participle that modifies the imperative. Again, what's the imperative? What's the main thought? The main thought is set your hope. But since this modifies that, it also takes on the force of an imperative. And on top of that, it's an instrumental participle. Now, here's what that means. He's saying, set your hope on the grace to be revealed to you by preparing your mind for action and being sober. He's commanding them to prepare their minds for action. And as they do so, it will help keep their hope alive. There's a tie here. There's a connection. 
as we live in a fallen world made up of trials and tribulations, if we start dwelling on, on all the bad in our minds, it's going to be easy to get depressed. Just think of how rampant depression and hopelessness are in our world today. But the believer is to have a different mindset. We worship and serve a God of redemption who is making all things new. And folks, that ought to change our mindset. And so he's saying, gird up the Lord of your mind. Now in all probability he is making an allusion here back to Exodus 12. You remember that story well in Exodus 12. The children of Israel are about ready to leave Egypt. God's going to deliver them. There's going to be one last plague that God brings on the Egyptians. He's going to kill all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. And God tells Moses to go and prepare your people. And he gives them instructions about that Passover meal. And how they're to take the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lentils. And they're to partake of that meal inside of their homes. And nobody is to go outside. But he says you're to eat the meal with sandals on your feet and your loins girded up. Because Pharaoh was going to wake up in the middle of the night and tell Moses to get his people together and get out. And so they were to be ready. They were not even to put leaven in the bread. There wasn't even going to be time to put leaven in the bread. It, there wasn't going to be time because they were going to be driven out of the land. They were going to be living, leaving quickly in haste. And that's why he said to Moses, Moses, tell them to have the sandals on their feet and their loins girded up. In other words, ready to leave, ready for action. And folks, Peter is saying that's what you and I are to do with our minds. We're to prepare our minds for action. And the way to do that is also by what he mentions next. We are to be sober-minded. That is another participle that modifies set your hope. It also takes on the force of the imperative. And it too is instrumental. But it goes with preparing your mind for action. And so being sober-minded means so much more than we think of today. We think of drunkenness. Don't be drunk. Well, while that's certainly true, being sober-minded in the New Testament means being self-controlled. It's in the present tense. It's an ongoing action. I like what Tom Schreiner says here. When you think of alcohol and drunkenness, you think of a mental dullness that goes with that. It's like the mind becomes anesthetized. And as Schreiner points out, if we're not preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded, our spiritual minds can become anesthetized with the attraction of the things of the world. And we're not to allow that to happen. We're to be prepared. We're to be self-controlled. We're to be ready. And he's saying as we do all of this, it's actually going to increase your hope. As you prepare your mind and you dwell on all the great things of God, it's going to increase your hope in the God that we serve. It's going to help you. 
Now I want us to think a moment about the impact of these verses. Let's think of a Bible character who I believe lived out what Peter is talking about here. Let's go back to the Old Testament and, and let's think a moment of young Daniel. You remember young Daniel, just a teenager. And Daniel was taken into captivity when Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem and Judea and he took the southern kingdom hostage in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And so obviously Daniel was facing hardship as a captive in a foreign land. And in that foreign land facing trials, Daniel could have given up. He could have thrown in the towel and just gone along with Nebuchadnezzar's plan to make a Babylonian disciple out of him. In fact, we would assume that most of Daniel's companions did just that because it's only Daniel and his three companions that factor into the storyline. None of the other young people did. But Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Instead of just looking at the present, he kept the big picture in mind. And because of that, God used Daniel for 70 years. In fact, when Cyrus gave the decree for the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple and their land, Daniel was still there. He was still making a difference. God used him mightily. You see, Daniel had girded up the loins of his mind and he was sober. He was setting his mind on a bigger hope. Amen? And that's what Peter is saying you and I are to do. Because we're aliens. We are strangers in this land, as Peter has pointed out already. It may be hard at times to be believers in an unbelieving culture. At times you might feel like a captive in a foreign land, but Peter is saying you need to keep your focus, you need to keep the big picture in mind and not give up or compromise your faith. You need to set your hope on the grace of God that will one day be revealed to you. And so now you need to prepare your mind for action. How do you do that? How do you prepare your mind for action so that your hope will only grow? Well, folks, I don't want to be overly simplistic here, but it's just it's what I've been telling you to do lately. We need to be a people of the book. Think about it. You and I, as God's children, have one book that we need to master. God's Word. Made up of 66 books. But one book that you and I, as believers, need to study and memorize and know. We need to equip our minds. We need to gird up the loins of our minds by reading God's Word. Because you see, it's in God's Word we're going to see what God is like. He reveals Himself in His written Word and through His living Word, Jesus Christ. And He reveals how He has dealt with people through the ages. If we want to get an idea of how God wants to deal with us, then we need to uh, read how God has dealt with people in the past. And so we need to be a people of the book. Here recently, I've given you 16 different reading plans that you'd be reading through your Bible this year and studying it. I hope you've grabbed a hold of one of those plans. And there's also so much good Christian literature to read these days that Christians of the past 
would, would have died for. They would have salivated to have what you and I have today. Folks, we need to be preparing our minds for action. It's not like it was a couple of generations ago where you might could say to somebody, do such and such or believe such and such simply because the Bible says it. People of another generation would say, okay, if the Bible says it, that settles it. I need to do that. But that's not the age that we live in today. We live in a postmodern culture today and we need to gird up the loins of our minds. We need to be ready to share with this generation the hope that we have in Christ. In fact, if we're going to carry out the Great Commission in our current generation, we're going to have to prepare our minds. If you're not willing to do that, you're probably not willing to be engaged in the Great Commission. Let me say one of the things I am so grateful for here is the time that I have to study because of the staff that you have put around me that allows me to feed my mind that I might in turn be able to feed you. But I want, I want to encourage you to be feeding yourself on your own. Dig into God's Word. Dig into good Christian literature. Dig into theology. Prepare your minds for action. Not only so that you can reach this culture, but your own hope in Christ will grow. What are you doing to prepare yourself? What are you doing to actively prepare yourself? Secondly, he tells us that we are to live in holiness. Look at verses 14 to 16. He says in verse 14, As obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The command to be holy actually comes not in verse 14, but in verse 15. And it too is an imperative. God's people are to be holy. There is to be a break with our past and a whole new way of life. Now in verse 14 he sets it up by saying that if they are going to be holy then they're going to have to refuse to be conformed to their former way of life. He mentions their passions that grew out of their former ignorance. He's probably writing to Gentiles. And this is evidence of that. In chapter 4 verse 3 he mentions their former way of life. He says for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. He points out here in verse 14 that there's got to be a clean break from all of that. Folks we cannot be conformed to our former ways. Because we're God's children now. There's to be a family likeness. In verse 16 he quotes from the book of Leviticus about holiness. And he's probably conflating together a couple of verses out of Leviticus that make that point that we are to be holy. And the foundation for our holiness, we are to be holy because the Lord our God is holy. Family likeness. 
Is there a family likeness in you to Jesus? You know, we say today on the physical level, we might say of a young man, he's going to grow up probably and be tall because his father is so tall. Family likeness. Well, the Bible says there is to be a family likeness. The God we serve is holy. And so you and I, if we are genuinely, truly converted children who've come to faith in Jesus Christ and been born again and indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, then we ought to look a little more like Him and a little bit less like the world. We read in the Gospels what Jesus was like and what he did. Now, obviously, he was sinless. We're not. But we're to look more like him. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8, 29, that it is God's plan to conform you and me to the image of Christ, that God, God's Spirit takes his word and conforms us more to the image of Christ. As you and I grow in our Christian faith, little by little, month after month, year after year, as believers who are maturing in the Lord, you and I ought to be looking a little bit more and more like Jesus all the time we ought to be holy because the Lord our God is holy when we dwell on that and let it sink in it ought to be obvious that the last thing you and I are supposed to do is just simply get up every day and be careless with our lives Folks, we are not to be careful. We are to give thought and attention to how we live our lives. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God instructed Israel that, that they were to be different from their pagan neighbors. It's the same with us today. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt and led them into the promised land, God was leading them into the land, giving them the land of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites served their false gods and their idols. One of the gods that the Canaanites served that unfortunately continued to be a temptation over and over and over again to the children of Israel was Baalism. Baalism was basically a fertility cult and a nature cult. The Canaanites believed that uh, the god Baal had a female counterpart Ashtoreth and Baal and Ashtoreth were in the heavens and they were being intimate with one another and through their intimacy that brought the rain and the fertility to the earth. And so what the Canaanites would do is they would go up on the high places and they would build altars to Baal up there. They were trying to get closer to him up in the clouds. And then in Baalism, the people would engage in sexual immorality. They thought that would motivate Baal and Ashtoreth to engage in intimacy. And as all that went on, then the rains would come and the earth would be fertile. It was a fertility cult. And that's, that's the climate that the children of Israel lived in. And God repeatedly told them, you are not to be like your neighbors, the Canaanites. Folks, God gave them ten commandments. 
that would express how different they were to be from their pagan neighbors. We serve this same holy God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so everything you and I do is to be a proper reflection of who He is. With Israel, there was to be no compromise. What was true of them is true of the church today. We dare not compromise with our culture. Contrary to what some people today might say, we do not reach our culture by becoming just like them. We are to be different. We are to be salt and light. And Jesus pointed out, it is in the difference that we will be salt and light. Not in the sameness, but in the difference that we will be salt and light. I mention all this because this is a real sticky thing for the church today. We've got to be relevant to our culture, obviously, but at the same time, relevance to our culture is where compromise and false worship can enter in as well. The Bible has got to guide us in all that we do. Uh, where we live, where we work, where we serve, where we worship. The Bible's got to guide all that we do so that we will live in ways that are pleasing to Him and accurately reflect His nature and His character. We're to be holy because the Lord our God is holy. Is your life holy? I have met people before and known them for a while and they'd come back later and tell me that they were a Christian and I was very surprised. There have been other people I have known who've come back later and told me that they were a Christian and I wasn't surprised at all. I knew it because of the way they spoke and the way they act, the way they acted. If you told people you were a Christian, would they be surprised? If they would be, I would suggest you've got a problem at the very core of your faith. We are to be holy because the Lord our God is holy. Thirdly, we are to live in fear, he began saying in verse 17. He introduces thoughts here that go along with being holy. He tells them that there needs to be a little bit of, uh, of fear. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We hear so much today about the love of God that seldom do we hear that there needs to be a reverential fear of God. People today don't even want to talk about fearing God. But the book of Proverbs reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Peter says you and I had better fear God. And notice why. Notice what he says about that that ought to make us sit up and take notice. What's he say about living in fear of God? Because we need to know that we serve a God who will judge all men without partiality. 
One commentator writes, Our knowledge of Him as Father must not dispel our dread of Him as our judge. The special privilege of calling God our Father does not excuse the believer from being judged by God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. I think there's something we miss sometimes in the Christian life. We celebrate verses like Romans 8.1 and we should. Romans 8.1 says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? No condemnation. But folks, we better not use verses like that as an excuse for sin. The book of Hebrews reminds us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he says, our God is a consuming fire. We need to fear him. There needs to be a reverential fear of God. I'm a little uncomfortable today with how casual we have become. I'm not talking about attire. I'm talking about attitude. How casual we are sometimes as coming into the presence of God. How lightly we take it. How casual we are in it. Folks, do we really understand what we are about? Do we really understand who we are approaching and the price that he has paid for our redemption? If we really could get the glimpse of that that I think we ought to get. You know what I think? I think sometimes when we came in here, we would fall on our faces before God and be on our faces before God weeping in repentance for hours before our worship service ever even began. A reverential fear of God. Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, we're in exile. We're aliens in a foreign land. This world is not our home. We serve the living and the true God who by his grace has allowed us to be born again. He's caused the new birth in us. And so that ought to bring a little bit of fear to us. Karen Jobes writes, the pagan life that God abhors will be no less abhorred if it is lived by one who professes to be a Christian. The, the, the pagan life that God abhors will be no less abhorred if it is lived by one who professes to be a Christian. Thomas Schreiner writes, the relationship we have with God is both tender and awesome. Tender and awesome. That's a balance we need to keep in mind. To continue to live in one's useless former ways is to deny the value of Christ's death because we've been redeemed and we've not been redeemed with silver and gold but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter writes here, that's been God's plan since the very foundation of the world. 
Peter wants them to see the privileged position that they stand in when it comes to salvation's history. When you look at verses 20 and following, he's taught there about salvation's history from eternity past to eternity future. And eternity past, Christ has been slain from the foundation of the world. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he's been made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying there, you need to understand where you live. It is a privilege and an honor to live on the side of the cross that we live on. The saints of old would love to have been a part of what you and I have the privilege of being a part of. That God's Messiah has come. That the Holy Spirit has come on all believers, indwelling all believers. The end of the ages has come in Christ. The saints of old would have died to have been a part of what you and I get to be a part of. And Peter is saying to them, this is where you stand. You need to understand where you stand in God's salvation history. And there needs to be a little more fear and holiness and appreciation and gratitude for what God has done. We're to live in hope. We're to live in holiness. And we're to live in fear. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, please, just a moment. Is there a stunned gratitude on your part for God including you in His plan? A stunned gratitude. I think of John in Revelation 1. When John turned and saw the glorified Christ, remember what he did? He fell on his face as a dead man. He was so overwhelmed, overtaken, and stunned by the reality of it all. Folks, we need to be a little more in awe of God's grace. This is not some game we're talking about here. This is heaven and hell. This is life and death stuff that we're about. Because of Jesus Christ, your entire eternity has changed. It ought to make all the difference in the world in your life even now. You know, I was thinking this week, if believers could only get a glimpse of the magnitude of what God has done in Christ, no preacher would ever have to stand up and admonish you to do a single thing. We'd just do it. Our lives are to be a living sacrifice because of the mercies of God. I want to challenge you this week to try to comprehend a little more fully the magnitude of what God has done in Christ. Pray about that this week. Dwell on what it means that God has included you. 
As a result of that, it ought to be the most natural thing that we gird up our minds for action, that we live in holiness and that we live in fear. A call to holiness. Lord, thank you for your grace, but may we never use your grace as an excuse for casual and careless living. May we prepare ourselves. May we gird up our minds. May we be self-controlled. May we be a hopeful people who live in holiness and fear until we see Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.